How are you all doing? Good. Hopefully your appetite has been whetted by Sophie's uh, suggestion that you can read the news sheet when my sermon gets boring. So thank you for that, Sophie. I will be looking out for individuals uh, who appear to be there but not there during this sermon. So <laughs> be warned. And uh, it's good to see you here, actually. And because and, and as I was preparing for this sermon, I I just happened to glance back at the sermons that I've preached over the last five months, just to see the full variety that one might expect. Uh, And this is what I've preached on for the last five months. So three weeks ago was on giving. The one before that was on the reality of judgment for Israel. The one before that was on the golden calf, again, judgment. The one before that was also on judgment, this time on Egypt, through the plagues. Uh, The one before that was giving, the gift day. Uh, The one before that was murder and judgment, Cain and Abel. And the one before that was the fall, and you've guessed it, more judgment. And now here I am, preaching on that everyone's favourite topic of fasting. So I just want to say thank you for turning up at all. (laughs) Um, It can only get better from here, can't it? So, anyway, here's the reality, though, besides uh, the humour. This is the reality, and this is the most important thing I want to say this morning which is that fasting, like all the other spiritual disciplines, is actually just a means of experiencing more of the grace and the blessing of God. The spiritual disciplines, which is what this Hungry to Grow series is all about, are simply things we do in order to get closer to Jesus. They don't earn God's favour. Jesus did that for us on the cross. But what they do do is they unlock more of his power in our lives and in our church. Or as one Christian writer put it, fasting accelerates the ability for our hearts to receive from the Lord. Now, who doesn't want those things? Do we want those things? Absolutely. So we don't need to be scared of fasting. We don't need to not turn up when it's about fasting. We don't need to turn our ears off. Actually, we're simply learning how we can experience more of the blessing and the presence and the power of God. Now, Satan doesn't want us to do that. He would much rather that we read the news sheet, as Sophie suggested. (laughs) But what, what God wants, he wants us to be genuinely open to a practice that through the ages has seen his people and his churches transformed. So if that's what you want, then join me in listening, but also let's pray now together that God would speak through this uh, widely overlooked means of his grace. Father God, thank you for fasting. Thank you that there are people in this church who have practiced it and seen extraordinary fruit from it. Thank you that actually your word, when we look for it, draws attention to the the normality of fasting, Lord, time and time again. As we look at that now, Father, would you capture our hearts? Would you move us from those who are in our comfort zone to those who consciously step out of it so that we might see breakthroughs in our lives and in our church? By the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen. Okay, so here's what I want to cover today. It'll be on the next slide here. The gift of fasting, that's what I called it. It is a gift. 
And here are uh, three things that I want to cover through the sermon. The biblical case, the experiential case, that is, if you like, the, the reasons that other people have, ex- have in their own experience found for uh, pursuing fasting. And thirdly, how are we going to respond? That's where we're going to finish today. And in making the biblical case for fasting, I want to say first, what fasting that's affirmed in God's eyes isn't. It's not for show, which is other people-focused, and of course was what Jesus was criticizing the Pharisees for, as we heard. It's also not about dieting, even if it has similar physical effects. It's not about controlling our food intake, uh, seeking extreme weight loss, as some illnesses can lead people to do. It's not anything to do with that. Rather, it's always spiritually focused. Always spiritually focused. And it's a practice that has clear biblical support. And that support is as firm as anywhere in the teaching of Jesus. In particular, that section of the Sermon of the Mount that we heard read. If you look at the context of that passage in in your Bibles, what you'll see actually is it's preceded by teaching about prayer and it's succeeded by teaching on giving. And there's almost an unconscious assumption that all three are a normal part of Christian discipleship. We have no more reason to exclude fasting from the teaching as prayer and giving. And you won't find many Christians who don't advocate them. And we can safely say that Jesus assumes fasting to be normal for his followers because he began that passage, didn't he, with the words, when you fast, not if you fast, which he repeated again in verse 17. And then equally compelling is the teaching of Jesus in response to a question by John the Baptist's disciples in Matthew chapter 9. They asked him there, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? It's a fair question. And Jesus answered this, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn when he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. For Jesus was the bridegroom, of course, in that analogy. So it was a time for feasting while he was there. But just as Jesus well knew that this was just for a season, it, that later on, after he died and risen and ascended, the time for fasting would come. And that's what seems to be the apostles' understanding as well. We actually have no record of them fasting until well into the book of Acts. So although there is no explicit command for Christians to fast in the Bible, it clearly is Jesus' expectation. And I would suggest it should therefore be ours. But for what sorts of reasons? And it's here we can draw on both the Old Testament and the new. In the old, the most obvious example of a command to fast is the Day of Atonement, when the whole people of Israel fasted for the day. And their fasting is clearly tied to repentance and forgiveness. But we also see, we also see in other places in the Bible, the people of God turning to fasting wherever their nationhood or even their very existence is under threat. For example, in learning that both she and her people were facing execution, Esther instructed Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do, 
And when this is done, I will go to the king. Esther, a Jewish queen, married to a non-Jew, facing execution with her people. She fasted. And it worked. Just interestingly, as it did in our nation's history as well, in 1756. I didn't know this until I was researching this sermon. But in that year, the king of Britain called the whole country to fast. And John Wesley, who was there at the time, wrote of it this. Every church everywhere was full. And humility was turned into national rejoicing when the threatened invasion by the French was averted. He called it the greatest day. And I wonder too whether there was something like that going on in the Second World War when just at the moment when they were about to seize victory, the German Air Force, in, in, uh, un, you know, understandably, well, sorry, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, inexplicably, that's it, decided to stop the Battle of Britain. Why did it happen? I don't know. But what I do know is there was a huge amount of prayer and fasting happening. And then let's go back to the Old Testament. Other moments of national emergency. You've got them under King Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 20. 20, Under Ezra, before the exiles begin their dangerous journey back to Jerusalem. And during the prophetic ministries of Joel and Zechariah. Again, those feasts, those fasts and those crises had a major repentance element too, as it was usually the disobedience of Israel that had led to them. But in the New Testament, we generally see fasting appearing in more positive circumstances. Here are some examples. The devotion of Anna in Luke chapter 2, who we're told worshipped, fasted and prayed night and day in the temple and was rewarded so wonderfully by seeing the infant Jesus presented there. Likewise, Paul fasted from food and water for three whole days after his conversion on the road to Damascus. And later, 2 Corinthians 11, he looked back at his many times of fasting through his ministry. And it was fasting too that led to Paul's first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13. For we read there, it was while the church in Antioch was worshipping the Lord and fasting that the Holy Spirit said to them, Set apart for me Barnabas, and saw for the work to which I have called them. They obeyed, and the spread of the gospel across Europe and ultimately to us was the result. Do you see the connection? Fasting changes things. When people fast, they hear from God. When people fast, new things that are going to have an extraordinary impact begin. And when people fast, true repentance follows, true forgiveness, restoration and transformation of nations and people. Fasting works. And let's now go back to that Acts 14 passage that we heard read, where we saw they were appointing elders in all of the churches they'd planted, and yet before they led, or before they put anyone in leadership positions, they fasted for the decision, and then fasted for the blessing of their ministry as they led that newly planted church. Put it all together. What's the picture of fasting we get in the Bible? Is that it can accompany prayer in many different situations, in times of intercession, in times of repentance, in times of worship, and in the seeking of guidance. And let's be honest, if it was needed then, it's certainly needed now. So that's the biblical case for fasting. 
What then is the experiential case for it? By which I mean the other benefits of those that those who have practiced fasting down the ages have experienced and highlighted. And I think there are at least six, and we'll go through those on the screen. And all of them positively affect our relationship with God. The first is that fasting increases our sense of humility and dependence on God. For hunger and physical weakness, of course, remind us that we are not really strong in ourselves and that we need his strength. Second, fasting allows us to give more attention to prayer, for that is what we're to do with our time that's freed up, or indeed to God's word and to reflecting on his purposes for our lives. On one occasion, when the disciples brought lunch to Jesus, assuming he was starving, he declared, I have food to eat, of which you do not know. My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to accomplish his word. He didn't talk about fasting there, but he was doing it. Jesus is saying, sometimes there's something much more important than physical food. It's obedience to God, and to accomplish his work. For fasting in God's eyes is not an end to itself. It's only when it's combined with prayer or meditation or reflection on his calling on our lives that the real spiritual benefit comes. And ultimately, the food we must be eating is doing the work he's called us to, having the impact on his kingdom he called us to. Yes, we need food to eat most of the time. But what we most need is to fulfill the call of God on our lives. We need that guidance and decisions. We need those prophetic revelations. We need that deliverance from destructive patterns of thought or behavior, all of which can flow from fasting. For as many devotees testify, it can unlock, it can transform anything, especially when it's backed up by others praying for us. Ministry going on, where the full power of God is sought to push out the bondage of the evil one who takes captive aspects, sometimes the whole of our lives. Spiritual battle is real, but the one that we follow is greater. If we seek all of his power, which fasting helps us to do, then we will be safe. We will be protected. We will be set free. And we will be fruitful. And that's deep down what we've all got to long for in our lives and in our church. And fasting third is also a reminder that just as we sacrifice some personal comfort to the Lord by not eating, so we must continually sacrifice all of ourselves to him. Do you see, when we restrain from eating food, it becomes so much more natural for us to think about restraining from other things, to become sacrificial in our whole bearing, our whole mentality, our whole attitude to life. And fourth, and related to that, fasting is a good exercise in self-discipline. For as we restrain from eating food, which we would ordinarily desire, so it also strengthens our ability to refrain from sin, to which we might otherwise be tempted to yield. If we train ourselves to accept the small suffering of fasting willingly, 
we will be far better able to succeed in the greater spiritual battles than to live holy and distinctive and fruitful and bold lives, countercultural lives, will inevitably bring. Then fifth, fasting also heightens our spiritual and mental alertness and concentration and our experience of God's presence as we focus less on the material things of this world and more on him. With the energies of our body freed from digesting and processing food, this enables us to focus on the eternal realities that are far more important. And I want to say to you this morning that this really does work. If you take daydreaming about your next meal out of the equation, you can better focus on God. Fasting has the power to lift us above the routine, the minutiae of life, especially food, and lift us above that onto the spiritual realm. And finally, sixthly, fasting expresses earnestness and urgency in our prayers. For if we continue to fast, eventually we would die. Therefore, in a symbolic way, fasting says to God that we are prepared to lay down our lives, that the situation we face be changed. Whatever that situation may be, it may be spiritual dryness, spiritual mediocrity. It may be feeling trapped in repeated sin or repeating patterns of thought that just make us feel low and hate ourselves. Laziness. Lack of clarity about what we're living for. Lack of passion for the gospel. Whatever these things are, fasting. By saying we're willing to give up anything can turn those situations around. If you want to be the person God made you to be, fasting is a vital part of your armory. I commend it to you. So, They are the benefits of fasting. Let's now consider then the rightful scope of fasting. For it's not just about food. I could have filled a whole sermon just talking about food. But actually, if fasting is to have maximum spiritual benefit in our lives, we need to consider other things that we've become too attached to as well. And it's here I want to refer back to the sermon I preached in August on idolatry and the sorry tale of the golden calf. I gave a definition of idolatry then as this. Anything we desire more than God. To which I added, it includes many good things that are not bad in themselves. And so, for example, even the things we hope that fasting will achieve should never replace God as our central focus. John Wesley, again, put it like this. First, let fasting be done unto the Lord with our eye singly fixed on him. Let our attention herein be this. And here's this alone, to glorify our Father which is in heaven. Which Richard Foster adds in the celebration of discipline is the only way we will be saved from loving the blessing more than the blesser. And Foster continues that once the primary focus of fasting is firmly fixed in our hearts, it, more than any other discipline, reveals the things that control us. We cover up what is inside us with food and other good things. But in fasting, these things surface. If pride controls us, it will be revealed almost immediately. Likewise, anger, bitterness, jealousy, strife, or fear. Fasting exposes anything destructive and idolatrous that lies beneath. 
And it's exactly because of those under-the-surface issues that the healing day that Jan spoke about is so important. Go and get those things released and ministered to. Don't be trapped in them and under them anymore. A whole day on healing, what an impact that could have. Please ask the question honestly of yourselves whether you shouldn't be there on that day. And lending biblical support to bondage to particular spirits needing the full artillery of prayer and fasting as a team. We have the chaotic scene in Mark chapter 9, which you may also be familiar with. There we see the disciples arguing the father, with the father of a son who was possessed by a very powerful spirit. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, we read, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked the disciples. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who's possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out its spirit, but they could not. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. What a great prayer that is. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? And in many modern versions of the Bible, we read this. Jesus then replied, This kind can come out only by prayer and fasting. Let's take note of that. I think those words are there for a reason. I'm not going to pretend that half of every church or half the general population of the UK is possessed by a spirit in that way. But what I do believe is that the connection between prayer and fasting, where someone is clearly not where they need to be, when someone is clearly possessed with a a pattern of thought that's holding them back, destroying their lives, why would we not fast and pray to give them the best chance of freedom? But prayer and fasting is not the only weapon of choice for freeing a person from evil spirits, whatever they might be. It's also just as good at liberating believers from the less less dramatic things that can capture our heart and become our treasure instead of God. Obviously food can, as the video at the beginning of the service illustrated, but so too can a desire for money and possessions. Did you know Jesus spoke more about money and possessions than anything else? Did you know that? 
That's how important he considers that issue to be for those who would be his disciples. And yet there are so many other things that can also become idols in our lives. Power, popularity, knowledge or intelligence, status through achievement, through sport, exams, career, looks, peer approval, saving face, being independent, an easy life, fashion, our body and appearance, sex, alcohol, smoking, drugs, romantic love, being needed, our role at work or in church, family, social media, politics, sport. And I'm sure you can think of some other things too. Are we willing to fast from the things we do that serve those idols and so strip them of their power? Because if Jesus is the Lord of our lives, we certainly should be. The bottom line is this. We all need to be able to fast from anything we've let ourselves believe that we can't do without. What might that include? Things as diverse as workaholism, retail therapy, use of social media, watching sport, alcohol, smoking, eating out, keeping with the news, keeping up with the news, even being with people. Something that was actually my idol throughout my 20s and 30s for about 15 years. Unless I was seriously ill, I went out every single night. I could not stand being on my own. And Richard Foster had something very interesting to say to people like that. He said this, that we need to learn to fast from people, not because we're antisocial, but precisely because we love people intensely. And when we are with them, we want to be able to do them good and not harm. Really thought-provoking, isn't it? What time do we have to spend on our own with God in order to be capable of making a difference? when we are with people. We're straying into the discipline of solitude here, but I don't think we've got to talk on that, so I don't mind touching on it. But I hope the shared principle with fasting is obvious. We need to come away from things we're dependent on so we can become their master, not their friend. And in the case of people, it's the time we spend alone with God which determines whether we will be sufficiently spiritually discerning and whether we will actually have something to say to them that points them to Jesus when we see them. We need to stop. And having established the widespread nature of our potential idols, I want to return specifically now to the issue of fasting from food. For that is the type of fasting that the Bible generally extols. So I want to ask of us whether we'd be willing to fast from one thing this coming week or to fast about one thing this coming week as a test of our willingness to come out of our comfort zone. For fasting has been presented as an aspect of Christian discipleship that Jesus expects. It was also practiced by the Old Testament people of God and the early church. But as we've made clear, Fasting should always have a deeper spiritual purpose, whether that's simply to gaze at the beauty and glory of the one who made you and rescued you, or to meditate on a piece of scripture, or to explicitly pray for a spiritual breakthrough in your life or in the life of another person. So will you, this week, take 45 to 60 minutes, one lunchtime, breakfast or dinner time, or 
or fast from two meals if you can. And in those times, take yourself away to a place where you can be on your own. If you're in work during the week, could you go out somewhere? Fresh air, the local church. Spend some time in there, fasting from food and praying to your Heavenly Father who gives us all good things. And if you're not at work, is there a way in your situation that you can do that? The chances are most of us can. And for most of us, fasting is a perfectly safe thing to do. If you know it isn't, that's fine. Just uh, ignore what I'm suggesting. But if you can fast, whether or not you ever have before, are you willing to do it this week? For one thing, that God wants to see changed. Something in your life? Something in the life of someone you love? Or something in this church? If we're willing to do that, if the whole of us were willing to do that, and willing to do that quite regularly, making fasting just a normal part of our practice as a church, believe me, we would change. I was chatting to Jan Ransom last week, and she said if this church genuinely embraced fasting as a regular part of who we are, the difference it would make would be extraordinary. Now, why does Jan say that? She says it because she's been part of a a leader of a team that has done that with Flame and maybe in other places too. She's seen the impact that it has. It's easy for us to look at Jan and think, that's just Jan. But actually, this is just what Christians do. This is what Jesus expects. So, What could be your one thing this week? In a moment, we're going to just invite the Holy Spirit to dwell among us fully, to fill us, and to tell us what that one thing is. But here are some suggestions. Maybe you, when you fast this week, could pray from freedom from fear or some other negative pattern of thought. You could pray for a transformed situation for you or someone else. You could pray for physical, emotional, or spiritual healing. You could pray for God to use you in bringing someone to faith. You could pray for God to do a new thing in you that will transform your fruitfulness from going through the motions to having a real tangible impact on others. Or if you're really stuck for ideas, you could pray for increased commitment to harvest from this church. So, my final questions to you today are this. What sort of Christian do you want to be? And what sort of church do you want St. Paul's to be? And are you willing to pursue that by giving up food for a meal or two this week and in the weeks to come for the sake of your own growth, your own freedom, your own fruitfulness and your own peace and joy? So, What we're going to do now is just ask God what one thing that is for each of us. Can I invite you to stand? I think as we seek the ministry of the Spirit, it is really good just to take a posture there we feel open to God. So many people find it helpful just to stand with their their hands open, perhaps to close their eyes.